Thank you, brother. It is a, it's a delight for me to be here. I hope it's a delight for you to have me here. Um, thank you for your prayers. Um, my mother-in-law's homegoing was uh, wonderful. Her daughter was at her side. And we have had some sweet times of uh, remembering Bonnie uh, with the family down in Long Island in particular that reminded us that uh, see, we, um, we've been taking care of my mother-in-law for the last four years solo. She's suffered from dementia for the last 10. So the, the woman that we knew was very much unlike the real Bonnie. And when we went down to Long Island, uh, we got to uh, hear stories about the woman we knew and days long gone, and it was very, very refreshing. So, But she's in the Lord's presence, she's whole, she's no longer in pain, and she is happier than she could ever possibly be here. So what's not to rejoice about in that, right? So turn, in your will, if you will, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 15. Uh, when uh, I was contacted, um, I don't know, a month or so ago, and asked to speak on this passage, um, I, I don't know how well I did, John, concealing my delight, um, because I, I, I love this section of John, and, and these verses in particular. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of John chapter 15. Now, my understanding is you guys are familiar, or you, you have in your possession um, a, a copy of Dr. Gooding's book, um, In the School of Christ is the name of it, right? A Study of Christ's Teaching on Holiness, right? You guys have seen the book? If you haven't, I recommend you go get a copy. It's it's, it's actually very, very good. And even though his name is Dr. David Gooding, it's not one of these books that's written 12 feet over your head that you can't understand it. It is down-to-earth, um, understandable, applicable exposition on, on chapters 13 through 17 of John's Gospel. I highly recommend it. And I also found it very enlightening and helpful that uh, uh, Dr. Gooding entitled his book, not just In the School of Christ, um, but he also said this, a study of Christ's teaching on holiness. Now, holiness was mentioned a couple times already during the Lord's Supper and in relation uh, to, the, to God. And it's, uh, it's a topic that isn't taught enough in the church, that God's holy. And the expect, well, first of all, we should define what we're talking about here. What, is, what does holiness mean? Probably the easiest way to define holiness is morally pure or moral purity. That's inadequate, but that's the best I can do. Without defect, without fault. Right? Um, holiness implies that there is a um, substantive, a demonstrable, a fundamental difference. It exists. And what the Lord Jesus is teaching in his, to his disciples in these chapters is that there ought to be a fundamental, demonstrable difference between someone who calls themselves a disciple and someone who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Holiness should characterize the life of the believer. Now, there's... there's two um, manifestations or, or two areas, I guess you could call, of holiness. One of those areas is internal, and one of those areas is external. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, external holiness are things that we can see in each other. 
they're the external things. The, the Old Testament economy, there was a lot that had to do with externals. There was food restrictions. There was clothing restrictions. There was who you associate, who you marry restrictions. There was, those things were defined. But there was also, the intent was that there would be an internal component of that. And really that internal component is what the Lord Jesus has been focusing on here in these chapters. Back in chapter 13, when the Lord washed the disciples' feet, was he giving an internal or an external exposition on holiness? How frequently have we been washing each other's feet here? Right? We, we don't. Why? The Lord was actually using that object lesson to teach about an internal, a mindset, a heart set regarding holiness. One had to do with service to each other. That's a mindset, a heart set to serve. One. You, Jesus said, I am not above getting down and doing the dirtiest job of the lowest slave for you. I am not above that. And he also gives this idea, remember he says, and we're going to touch on this again this morning, you are all clean. Because Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you, can't. you guys remember this? You were here for this, right? Peter, Peter says, oh, you're, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, I have to wash your feet. Or I, we, we can't have any communion, fellowship with each other. And then Jesus says, what? Oh, in that case, bathe me. Jesus says, you don't, you don't need a bath. You are already clean. You just need your feet washed. Your feet are dirty. Oh, and now there's a lesson about personal sanctification. It's going to be expounded in the, in, in the rest of the New Testament a little deeper, but the Lord gave this teaching about a mindset and a heart set. Right? There are internal elements of holiness, there are external elements of holiness. Problems arise when we become so focused on the externals that we disregard the internals. That is the fundamental issue with legalism, right? An emphasis on externally acting holy. But inside, just like the people and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, when he said, you're full of nothing but dead men's bones. You're full of corruption. Externally, you're painted white. You look great. You have this aura of purity, but you're not. You're not holy on the inside. You just pretend to be holy on the outside. And so Jesus, through these teachings, is, is getting, um, trying to teach his disciples about what it is to be internally holy. To be internally holy. It's also amazing to consider the context that this teaching is going on in. Jesus is literally hours away from going to the cross. And as we ended chapter 14, we know this. The Lord's Supper has been instituted after Judas left. And Jesus says at the end of chapter 14, let's go out. And they sing a hymn together as they leave. And they, and they, they come out of that, that borrowed upper room 
in a corner of Jerusalem, and they walk down the dark streets, and um, they're heading east. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, there's a, there's a, it's, it's kind of dome-shaped. The city's on a, on a hill. And they, they're, they're traveling now down um, the ravine that goes down to the Kidron Valley. There's a little brook that runs down there. And on the other side of that brook is the Mount of Olives. And at the base of the Mount of Olives, there's a little garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where they're going. Now, as they travel down um, that ravine, if you go there today, that, that, that side of the ravine that Jerusalem is on, facing the Mount of Olives, is covered in graves. It's a, it's a graveyard. But I believe in the, in the time when this was written, it was actually, there was vines planted there. There was a vineyard along there. And as they are walking down this ravine, the Lord Jesus uses what's around him to bring in another important lesson on holiness for his disciples. So let's read together the first 11 verses of John chapter 15. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Okay, that was pretty cool, but I had nothing to do with it. See, that's the kind of emphasis that you can't manufacture right there, right? (laughs) Verse 2 of John 15. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me... And my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing now on our time. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for his precious words, and we ask now uh, the help of your Holy Spirit to help us understand all that he meant. Lord, we don't want to just understand it. We We want to be changed by it. We pray that you would bring that to pass. We pray believing that you can, for we pray in the precious and the holy and the powerful name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's uh, go through this verse by verse and see what the Lord has in store for us here. Uh, verse number one, the Lord Jesus is defining terms. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Um, back in chapter first, uh, 14, right? I am the, w- the way, the truth, the life. You guys remember that? Okay. 
same sort of idea here. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am unlike any other. There is no substitute. I am the singular vine. Interesting thing about vines. Um, vines are a type of plant that can go where other plants can't go. They can reach heights and reach places that others can't. Right? They are climbing. They are sprawling. They are relentless. If any of you have done any work in your yard. Should I be doing something different up here? <laughs> Keep going? Okay. Thank you for the sound effects. It's pretty cool. Well, <laughs> okay. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And he says, my father is the husbandman. The husbandman, the owner of the vineyard. And the idea behind that is he is the one with authority. He is the one with knowledge about how vines work. What is best for a vine. Um, if you want to uh, grow grapes, um, it's not as easy as throwing, a, or, or usually you get the plant already, just putting the vine in the ground, planting it, and go, all right, let's, 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 let's have grapes. There's actually a lot of work that goes into a vineyard. There's a lot of work that goes into raising grapes. Let's stop here for a second and think. What is the purpose of having a grapevine? Grapes. Ultimately fruit, right? Brother said wine. I know where you're going. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what you do with it, right? The purpose of having a vineyard is growing grapes. There's no point in having a vineyard if you're, there's no expectation of the fruit, right? Okay, let's get our minds tuned in on this. There is an expectation of fruit. That's why the vineyard exists. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman or the vine dresser. The one with authority and the one with knowledge. Verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now, at face value, that seems harsh. Um, if some of you, if you study out this, this, uh, the word that's translated taketh away, it can also be translated taketh up or borne up. Um, and some folks have tried to make a big deal about that, that it doesn't really mean to be taken away. It really means to be supported. Kind of the context doesn't really fit that very well. Um, and I think taking away is actually the, the proper thing to say here. Because, again, what is the purpose of having a vineyard? Fruit. Fruit is the point. And so Jesus says quite succinctly here, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. That's exactly what it means. A, a, a husbandman of a vineyard, if there is a branch that is not bearing fruit, he removes it. That's, that's just how it works, okay? He removes it. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges or cleanses it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So here's the deal. If some fruit is good, more fruit is better. And that is how 
the master of the vineyard thinks and acts. Because the purpose of the vineyard is grace, to grow fruit. And the husbandman of the vineyard acts on that purpose. If a branch is not producing fruit, it is taken away. It's removed. And any branch that does produce fruit is cleansed or purged that it may produce more fruit. How, in, in, the, in a topic of horticulture, what's the deal with pruning? What gets pruned? Well, two things basically get pruned. That which is dead and unproductive gets pruned off. Or that which is not contributed or contributing to growing fruit gets trimmed off. Now, that's a great idea, except when we think about, as we're going to learn here in a couple of verses, that we're the branches. And so, so the whole thing of pruning sounds a little painful, right? What is God's purpose? To bear fruit. Does he have the authority, does he have the knowledge to see to it that that occurs in the most efficient, most loving way possible? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Verse 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. It's interesting. Jesus repeats essentially something very similar to what he said in chapter 13. Except when he said it in chapter 13, Judas was in the room. And when he said it in chapter 13, he made the provision. He said this, now you were clean, but not all of you. Right? Jesus has now left. Jesus makes a very similar statement again, except there's no proviso. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He is talking to the 11 remaining disciples. Right? There's no question about that. that, who, that that's who he's talking about and talking to. And so when he says this, he is now affirming that these 11 guys are ones who would be able to bear fruit. Now, why am I emphasizing this? I'm emphasizing this because, particularly for myself, when I was a younger Christian, I, I read this passage of Scripture, and I thought to myself, branches are getting lopped off, unfruitfulness. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? Is that what's being talked about here? No, it is not. We always let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? The Lord Jesus chooses words deliberately. Deliberately. So, when he says in, in chapter 3 to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, how many times were you physically born? You were born once. So was I. Can you do anything about changing who your parents were? No. It's a one-time event that, quite frankly, can't be altered. The fact that you were born. Right? And so when the Lord Jesus uses that analogy about being born again, and Nicodemus had a question about that, what are you talking about? We're talking about a one-time irreversible event. That's what conversion is. It is a one-time irreversible event. 
And we could look at other scripture to talk about and, and flesh that out a little bit. But, but that is what scripture declares. Right? John chapter 10, no one can pluck mine from my hand, Jesus said. Right? Or my father's hand. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Who is Jesus talking to again here? Eleven remaining disciples. What is going Hours from when he says this. They are all going to run away. The one who kind of has made himself, or the one with the most leadership uh, displayed, uh, it's recorded in the Gospels, is not only going to run away, he is going to deny he even knows Jesus. And he's going to do that at at least one point to a little girl. He's going to be so terrified of a little girl. He's going to deny that he knows Jesus. Are these guys perfect? No. No, they are not. Is their understanding of who the Lord is and what he's doing, is it perfect? No. Not by a long shot. What does Jesus declare about them in spite of all of their failure? You are clean. You are clean. How? Did you get yourselves clean, disciples? Did you, did you, what did you do to make your... No, they didn't do anything to make themselves clean. They were made clean by the word that was spoken to them and their belief in that word. Right? By faith, you are saved. You are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. It is through the revelation of the Son of God to people to understand who God is and how to approach him. These men, despite all of their misunderstanding and their failure, had understood this one simple truth. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew chapter 16, right? These 11 guys believed that. And that is the basis on which they are clean. They're not perfect. But the Lord Jesus here says you are clean. You are righteous because of your faith in the Son of God. Verse 4. Abide in me. Now, the word here in the Greek that is translated in English, abide, is going to be used ten times in the next, I think, like seven verses. It's either going to be translated either abide or continue. It's the same word, though. Okay? It's a big deal. What does abide mean? Right? Abide means to stay where you have been placed. That's what it means. It means to stay where you have been placed. And the idea is that you haven't placed yourself there, but you have been placed there by a outside power. Stay where you have been placed. Jesus says to his disciples, Abide, stay where you have been placed in me, and I in you. Jesus is going to continue to abide He's going to continue to stay exactly where he is. It's an interesting thing, folks, and it's an accurate thing when we say that someone has drifted away from the Lord. Because the truth is the Lord never moved. He didn't move. 
Jesus says, abide in me, and I will abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. Now, you can almost imagine this as these guys are walking down um, that slope, down towards the Kidron Valley, and they're walking probably through this vineyard. And Jesus is pointing out and making this lesson, the whole purpose of having a vineyard is to grow fruit, ultimately that you could make wine, And the only way that the vine bears fruit is through the branches. And the only way those branches actually can do anything is if they actually stay connected, they can continue to abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. It's a really simple object lesson. Branches disconnected from the vine do not bear fruit. Right? Right? We're not talking about deep theological truth here, although we are. But it's just, so, it's just so obvious, right? A branch disconnected from the vine cannot bear fruit. What's the purpose again of having a vineyard? Bearing fruit! Verse 5. I am the vine. Now, there's a different um, emphasis between verse 5 and verse 1. Verse 1, the Lord Jesus is emphasizing um, his relationship between him and his father and his father's relationship to the vineyard. In verse 5, he's really ta- now he's going to talk about himself, the vine, and his relationship to the branches. Right? Verse 5, I am the vine. Now, we could spend probably the next 20 minutes talking about the history of Israel, but we don't have that kind of time. So we're just going to make a reference to the fact that in the Old Testament, Israel, the Lord, and you can look up the passages there had been a reference that Israel was the vine. And they brought forth, as it says in Isaiah, you you didn't bring forth fruit. You became a wild vine. Um, I grew up in Hamden, not too far from here. Right down the street from Westwood's Bible Chapel, if you guys know where that is. And by the way, we were almost always late every Sunday morning. We live a quarter of a mile. I think Fred was the only one who's closer than us uh, to Westwood's Bible Chapel. But if you walked along um, Hillfield Road, um, there was a pond, um, a man-made pond, uh, a, a fellow by the name of Joe Como had it put in for the neighborhood kids to play hockey and fish and do stuff in during the summertime, and play hockey in the wintertime. And there was a chain-link fence that between the road and the pond. And I can remember walking along that road as a kid, and there was a grapevine that grew up on that chain-link fence, a wild grapevine. You could smell the grape smell. You guys know what that smells like? And it's, it's, just, it's distinct and it's alluring, right? It's like, oh, that smells like really wonderful fresh grapes. I cannot tell you how many times as a child I climbed through the briars and in the brush and got over to where that chain link fence was and started parting the leaves on that grapevine looking for grapes and never found one. It was a wild grapevine. And all it ever did was grow leaves and make itself bigger and grander. That's the analogy of what Israel turned out to be. They were God's vine. They were supposed to bear fruit for him. And instead, there was no fruit. There was just display. 
And so Jesus is now making this analogy with these 11 Jewish men who understand the Old Testament, understand Scripture, understand the history behind this, understand where they're standing more than likely in a vineyard. And Jesus makes this statement, I am the vine. I am the source. I am the channel of sustenance in which God expects fruit to come by. Not a nation any longer, not a people any longer, through me, Jesus says. Through me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Not one day you will be, you are the branches. The verb is in the present continuous tense. You are the branches. You are the means by which the fruit comes out. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. As he had made the illustration in the previous verse, that a branch separated from the vine can't bear any fruit. In like manner, you, disciples, if you're disconnected from me, if you do not abide, if you don't remain where you have been placed in me, there is no way you can bear fruit. But if you remain, you can bear much fruit. Much fruit. Let's stop for a second. What are we talking about fruit here? Because we're talking about a spiritual thing, right? What are we, what's being referred to? Well, let's let Scripture define Scripture. Um, there's some fruit that I know probably all of us could sing along with right now, right? Hopefully you learned the jingle, the little, the little Fruit of the Spirit song. Where would we go if we wanted to learn what that fruit was in Scripture? Galatians chapter 5. Very good. The Fruit of the Spirit. I believe there's eight? Thank you. There's nine. Yeah. All right. And, and if you're, you're probably doing the same thing I'm doing right now. You're singing the song in your head, right? Those are manifestations or fruit of the, not fruits, not plural, one, it's one fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Faithfulness, thank you. That's one aspect of fruit that is expected to be born in the life of a believer. Hebrews chapter 13 has another type of fruit that talks, the Scripture talks about, the fruit of Praise from our lips. Fruit of praise. That's that's an expected fruit in the life of a believer. Um, Colossians, I believe it is, chapter 1. There's another fruit that's referred to. The fruit of righteousness. Righteousness in the life of a believer. That's expected in the life of a disciple. Those are the types of fruit that God is looking for. Right? I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I think I've shared this analogy before. I heard it at a Long Island Young People's Conference, which is, goodness, a long time ago now, when I was a teenager. And the brother who shared it used this analogy. Um, It was about an orchard, but it applies to a vineyard as well. If, if you go by an orchard at night in, in the, uh, not now when the trees are all dormant, but if you go by in the summertime or late in the summer and, and you listen very carefully 
to the trees. What do you hear? Do you hear a lot of grunting and straining? Do we hear trees out there going, Apple! Beach! No, 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 you don't hear that at all. You don't hear the vineyard going, Grapes! That's not how it happens. It happens in silence. It happens so slowly and so naturally that you can't even notice it happening. You can stand there and stare at that tree, and you don't notice. You can stand there and stare at the vineyard or at a vine and not be able to perceive that fruit is being produced, but it is. I guess if you stood there long enough, you could tell. The idea is this. <clears throat> it happens naturally. It just happens naturally. The fruit isn't making itself grow. But the branches connected to the source of nutrients, the source of support, the vine or the trunk makes sure the branches are fruitful. It just does that naturally. Right? As long as they are attached. Verse 6, and again, if, if someone is caught in the idea of eternal security, verse 6 can be problematic. If a man abide not in me, who is Jesus talking to? Right In this situation, who is he talking to? He's talking to 11 believers that he has now twice declared to be clean. Okay? If a man abide not in me, what does that mean? It means the possibility exists to not abide in him. That's what it means. He wouldn't have said that if it's not a possibility. And he's talking to 11 believers. Right? If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. What is the purpose of a vineyard? To grow fruit. How is it possible for a branch to bear fruit? It, it's got to be abiding in the vine. It's got to stay attached. If a branch removes itself, does not abide in the vine, can it bear fruit? It cannot. And the whole purpose for its existence is lost. What is it good for? At this point, now there's, remember, God the Father is the husbandman, he takes care of the vineyard. If the branch that is no longer attached to the vine cannot bear fruit because it's no longer attached to the vine, what is the branch good for? It's good for nothing. The whole reason for its existence, it can't meet. If we go back and we look at, um, I think it's in, I think it's in um, Isaiah. Forgive me if I'm wrong on that, 
But God makes this point when we're talking about Israel as the vine. He's like, it's not like you're strong enough wood that we can even use you for a peg. You, you can't pound you into a wall to use. To, to, there's nothing useful that you can be apart from growing grapes. Is the Lord Jesus talking about believers losing their salvation and being eternally lost here? No, he is not, because the preponderance of Scripture says that that, it, that can't happen. In the same sense that you were born to the parents that you were born to, you can't be unborn from them. Once you are born into the family of God, you are part of the family of God forever. So if this is not talking about a loss of salvation, what is it talking about? Because it seems pretty severe, right? I mean, again, Jesus chooses his words carefully and deliberately under, he's God, right? Let me ask you a question. Is it possible to have a saved soul but a lost life? Yeah, if you don't believe me, again, we always want to have Scripture interpret Scripture. Think of Lot. We wouldn't actually know this from reading the narrative of his life in Genesis, but when we get to 2 Peter, Peter says this about Lot, that righteous man, what? That, that righteous man? Yeah. That righteous man vexed his soul by moving down to Sodom. A man who took care of herds of animals, moved into a city. What, was, what are you doing there, Lot? It wasn't just any city. It was a wicked city. Well, how wicked was it? We know this. Lot had at least four daughters. He might have had more children, but it talks about his married daughters, his sons-in-laws, plural, so that means there had to have been at least two, and his unmarried daughters. There had to have been at least two. His children were so corrupted by the culture that he chose to raise them in that his married children perished in the judgment of Sodom. And his unmarried daughters, without hesitation, committed a horrible act of immorality, committing incest with their father. Because that's what they knew to do. Lot is an example of a person with a saved soul. The Bible declares him righteous, but a lost life. There's no fruit in Lot's life. Honestly, the, the, the legacy of Lot's life is um, trouble for God's people. That's all his legacy bore. Trouble for God's people. He removed himself from that place of being a blessing and made a choice with his life that bore no fruit. John, in, in, in his uh, first epistle, writes this uh, about, um, says this, this one phrase, that we would not be ashamed at his coming. He's talking about believers. He's talking to believers. That you would not be ashamed at his, the Lord Jesus' coming. What again does that imply? 
It implies you, you, you can't put yourself in a place that you are ashamed when the Lord comes back. Ashamed of what? Not abiding. Not abiding in Him. You see, a branch of a grapevine that chooses to not abide in the vine, to not stay attached to the source of support and nourishment in order that it would bear fruit, once you detach yourself from that vine, you are removing yourself from ever being fruitful, from ever being part of the whole reason the vineyard exists and why you were there to begin with. So much so that, quite frankly, your life, from God's perspective as far as fruitfulness is, your life is of no use. You've removed yourself from the place of being useful to God. I know there are others who um, would also attach to this the whole idea of we might be talking about folks who profess to be Christians but really aren't. And I suppose you can roll that up in there as well. But I I think based on the context, and the Lord Jesus is talking to 11 believers, that he has twice declared to be believers, that it's it's really focused on this group of people. It's a sobering thought, saints, right? Now, thankfully, he doesn't leave us there, because that that whole thought's kind of a downer. But again, the Lord Jesus is straight with his disciples. He's just completely honest and transparent, right? Would you be cut off from the opportunity, or would you cut yourself off from the opportunity of being a blessing, of being one who bears fruit for the Father? Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, here's an interesting thing of this progression. You're going to notice as you study through chapters 13 through 17 that the Lord actually brings up um, some similar things over and over again. Uh, One is he's going to bring up uh, the idea of serving each other. He's going to bring up the idea of loving one another and the whole idea of love. That's going to be repeated. We're going to get to that here if I don't, if I I got to keep moving, right? Um, Prayer, he's going to mention more than once. The Holy Spirit, he's going to mention more than once. He's reminding his disciples of these things. And so he says in this verse, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. He's talking, when you ask God for something, we have a word for that. That's called prayer. Right? Okay. Is this a blank check? There's a boat I want. There's a house I want. There's a job I... No, no, this is, not a, this is not a blank check, right? The idea is this. You are a branch abiding in the vine. Your job is to do what? Bear fruit. What should the prayer have to do with? Bearing fruit. That would be aligned with both the purpose of the vine and the purpose of the husbandman, the owner of the vineyard. So when you ask in relation to being a more fruitful branch, Jesus tells his disciples. We'll hear and answer that prayer. We'll hear and answer that prayer. Verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, 
that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. Again, we circle back to where we started in verse 1. The Father is the owner of the vineyard. The reason you have a vineyard is not to grow leaves, it's to grow fruit, to have grapes. The Father is glorified when fruit is born. Uh, What does that word glorified mean? Oh, that's, that's, that's a good one. Honored. Glorify. The, the actual Greek word means um, outshining, which for me doesn't help very much. Um, I had a brother give this definition years ago. I've never forgotten it. And I forgive me if I'm sharing it again. Um, glory, glorified, means excellence on display. Right? Excellence on display. When believers bear fruit, that spiritual fruit that we talked about earlier, when, when those things are manifest in your, life, in your life, the Father's glory is put on display. His excellence is put on display. Because right? here's the deal, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God's glory, He doesn't share. He doesn't give to anybody. He won't share with another. And if... If our mindset is, wouldn't it be nice if God gets glory, then if I get some too? No, 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 no. God is not interested in the excellence of me being displayed. God is not interested in the excellence of humanity being displayed. We are a hot mess, folks. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we are a steaming pile of refuse. Right? There is no glory in us, apart then from what the Lord has ascribed to us. For the Father to be glorified, for His excellence to be put on display. That is what He desires in us. Doesn't stop there, though. Because now you may be thinking, well, this is sort of a mercenary relationship. I'm I'm not quite sure. I feel like I'm being used. Right? Well, keep reading. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. How has the Father loved the Son? Completely, without fail. This is the agape love, too. This is the, I will always seek what's best for you. How has the Father loved the Son? completely and without fail. How has the Son loved the disciples? In the same way. Completely and without fail. In just a little while from when he says these words, he's actually going to demonstrate the most, um, the penultimate display of love. As he gives his life for them. Right? So have I loved you, continue you in my love. So this is not a mercenary relationship. This is not a user sort of relationship. The, the, The reason Jesus is saying, my desire for you is that you would bear fruit, that you would abide in me, is not because I want to use you, it's because I love you. The the basis of this teaching is that I love you. Love you. 
I sincerely and completely and nonstop only desire that which is best for you. How do we show our confidence in that love? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Remember, the backdrop of this is holiness. The backdrop of this is that there ought to be holiness in the life of the disciple. There ought to be a demonstrable difference between the life of a disciple and the life of someone who isn't a disciple. And part of that mindset, part of that heart set is this absolute conviction that God loves me. Are you convinced that God loves you? Now, I don't, I don't say that in a trite way. Are you convinced that God loves you? In, in the previous chapter, Jesus had been sharing some things, um, and, and the disciples knew something was happening, something's going on. Some, things are different. Things are about to change. Jesus is talking about going away. What does he mean by that? And if we backed up a little bit to chapter 14, Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Have confidence in my love for you. Even in, the, even in loss? Even when things are going sideways and not the way we expected? Yes. Yes. Because, right, folks, this is the truth, right? Because life ain't perfect. Things happen in life that we didn't see coming or certainly didn't want to happen. Uh, people die that we didn't want to die. Young people We, have, we, we live our lives with certain expectations, right? That we're going to fall in love, we're going to get married, we're going to have kids, they're all going to be perfect and healthy and wonderful and change the world, and we're going to die quietly in our sleep at 105, right? And life frequently doesn't bring that to us. Does that mean God doesn't love me? When life goes sideways? If you are not disciples fundamentally convinced in your heart that God loves you, please go back and reread this. Please go back and read God's, John's gospel. All of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John chapter 20, I think it's verse 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you would have life in his name. He loves you. He loves you. How can I show him that I love him? The formula is right here. I keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. I can't keep his commandments if I don't know what his commandments are. So it's, 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 it's on me to go find out what his commandments are, right? 
It says in Matthew's gospel that his, his commandments aren't burdensome. Right? It didn't weigh us down to crush us under a list of things. Right? Because he loves us. Part of the problem is with, with being convinced in his love is that we know ourselves a little bit too well, right? Oh, come on. Husbands, have you ever gotten chippy with your wife when something didn't go quite right? Wives, have you ever gotten a little bit of an attitude when your husband screwed up again? Right? See, that's our experience even with like sort of the best parts of love, right? And we kind of expect that God's going to respond the same way. No, 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 that's not who he is. That's not who he is. He doesn't get chippy. He doesn't cop an attitude. He doesn't get back at you. Sometimes he loves you so much he'll let you be for a bit. He'll give you a chance to figure it out. Sometimes he loves you so much that he corrects you. He changes your direction. And sometimes you're not really ready or willing to have your direction changed. But he loves you enough to do that for you before something horrible happens in your life. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments. See, Jesus is not asking his disciples to do anything he hasn't already done or isn't already doing. Folks, think of this. Think this through. And I know it's a sobering thought, but it's just truth. For Jesus to be obedient and abide in his Father's love, what did that require? What was required of Jesus to obey the Father? Go into the cross. That was the Father's will for him. Hebrews chapter 5, uh, I think it's verse 6, says this, Though he were a son, speaking of Jesus, yet learned he obedience through the things that he suffered. Wait a second. He's God. What does he have to learn? Ah, there's things that only can be learned through experience. There's things that only can be learned by going through them. And frequently, that involves suffering, either small or great. But Jesus doesn't lay anything on his disciples that he is not already either doing or about to do. His obedience to the Father is going to cost him dearly. He's convinced of his Father's love for him, unwaveringly. And it says in Matthew's Gospel, I'm sorry, in Luke's Gospel, that Jesus knowing what was going to happen in Jerusalem to him, set his face like a flint to go there. No sense of, ah, I'm not sure I want to do this. My father's commandment, my father's will is that I go, and I am doing it. I'm convinced of his love for me. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, 
and that your joy might be full. I'm so thankful that by the Holy Spirit, a brother this morning at the Lord's Supper read from uh, John chapter 5. And he read this about the Lord Jesus. He said, my food is to do the Father's will. My food is to do the Father's will. Um, I mentioned earlier that we just buried my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law, she loved to serve, and she loved to entertain, and she loved to cook. And one of the things that came out at her memorial service uh, on Friday was one of the nephews um, stood up and he said, when, um, when he got married and he went to a family gathering of his, of his wife's family and they had their first meal, he surveyed the table and he looked around and there was no jello mold. <laughs> and he thought to himself, what is wrong with these people? Don't they know how to do it? Why is there no jello mold? My mother-in-law made this absolutely incredible jello mold thing. I can't even tell you what was in it. All I can tell you is that there was always a fight to get your spoon in it, right? There was joy in that activity of eating that thing. Jesus says, it's my food. That fundamental thing that every human being really enjoys. All of you right now are thinking about lunch. You, you, you don't have to say it out loud. I can read it on your faces. Right. You see, we're not left here with some sort of cold, sort of militant, sort of let's just, all right, okay, okay, I'll march through this life thing. I'll be convinced that God loves me and I'll go be fruitful and I'll hate every minute of it, but I'll get through it. No, 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 that's not the point. Jesus says this. All the stuff we talked about. Jesus says, me obeying my Father and His commandments, it causes me to rejoice. It's the thing that just fundamentally fills me with yay. It's good. I want you to have that same thing. I want you to know that same joy. I want my joy to be in you. And then your joy would well up as you bear fruit in my Father's will. Convinced in his love, abiding in me. You would know the joy that I know. And yeah, okay, some of it's hard. Oh, but there's joy. Brother read from a psalm this morning about there's sorrow in the night, but there's joy in the morning, right? That's what Jesus knew. That's what he was talking about. Brothers and sisters, As you and I evaluate our own lives, and in light of the expectation that a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, there ought to be manifestations of holiness in my life. They start internally, and they grow out internally to external manifestations of holiness. How's that work going? Fellow branches, how are we doing at bearing fruit? Are we uh, cooperating with the vine dresser? Or do we, do, do we resent and, and um, push back against his efforts to clean us, to, to cut away the dead stuff, to trim away the stuff that isn't involved in growing fruit, that is just sapping energy from the vine and not doing anything related to our purpose for him? Do I cooperate in, with God in that? 
or do I fight against it? Am I convinced that he loves me? Do I exercise my amazing privilege as a branch to pray? To ask him for help? It's possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. What a terrible thing to be presented before the judgment seat of Christ and have nothing that the Lord could, you, could reward you for because there was no fruit in your life. We have time which is a gift from God. Let's not worry about what happened yesterday. Let's take what lessons we can from it and cooperate with God today and tomorrow. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your son as we uh, think back to this, just hours before uh, he was to be crucified when he would suffer um, in a way that he had never known before in eternity past. In obedience to you, Father. And out of love, both towards him and towards us. Lord, I pray that the words that we have looked at this morning, that your son spoke to us, these things would um, bear fruit in our lives. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us um, to learn to be obedient. Help us to love your commandments, to love your instruction. Help us, help me, Lord, to anticipate and look forward to your joy in my life as I seek to be obedient, as I seek to abide in you. Lord, we ask that you would protect us from ourselves. All the horror, all the tragedy of not abiding in the Lord Jesus, of seeking some other place, of seeking some other form of nourishment, of strength. Lord, help us, preserve us from that. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us your Son. We thank you again for the word that you saw fit that was left to us to read, to study, to understand. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which helps us to apply it, and it empowers us to live it out. We thank you. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.